are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything's possible. Live from a pretty traumatized metropolitan area, it's the 252. Sports mm. Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett, joined by Chris Moore and Sam Mulberry. So I thought we had to acknowledge right away, uh, the Twin Cities are in an interesting place right now. Um, of course, a couple of days ago. Uh, That's maybe, interesting in the Minnesota. In the Minnesota exactly how Minnesota would describe it. So uh, I don't think we have to go through the entire story about uh, a man being... Um, been killed while being arrested and since then we've had protests we've had rioting uh just down the street from me rosedale one of the shopping centers closed down because protests were moving there it's got to saint paul actually not too far from where sam used to live um by the soccer stadium um so that's going on we're grading finals week was last week so we're we're kind of wrapping up a semester so there's a lot in the background but we want to do one last episode of the 252 for the 2019-20 season. Or Sam, yeah. I, I don't know how we actually demarcate seasons. Uh, yeah, I think that works. Time. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, our, our, our class finale of the podcast was last week. When we gave our students their final exam. So mm-hmm. I, maybe we'll have a few students listening. Maybe we converted some of them into regular into listeners. But um, we, we thought we'd just start with a little bit of wrap-up of how the actual semester went. Yeah. So, Chris, I've I've gone through my final essays yet. I still have some tests to grade. So I have a couple of thoughts about those, but I'll, I'll open it up with you. What Anything that struck you about how the semester, <laughs> I was going to say, surprised you about how it went, that's kind of obvious. But anything that struck you, yeah. uh, even as you finished grading, about how the first history and politics of sports went? Okay, so this is how I connect this. And forgive me if this is just a, a wee bit long-winded. But, Chris, did you have to do, like, in your very first semester of graduate school, did you have to read sort of any seminal books on historiography and um, how you, you know, how you do the practice of history? No, but historians are terrible about that. Like, we never study theory or philosophy of our discipline. We, we just, okay. like, do it, and we never think about how we do it. So okay. I don't think Yale was unusual that way. Well, the at Ohio State for political science, the book to read was a book called Designing Social Inquiry by uh, King, Cohen, and Verba. And was common, was just it was so ubiquitous, people just called it KKV, uh, the author's last names. It was like sort of like the King James version of it. Sounds of, like a Dutch football side, right? <clears throat> yes, a little bit, a little bit. And so, uh, but one of the big points, and this was a very quantitatively oriented book, but one of the key points they made was you have to have enough observations to deal with the number of treatments that you want to apply to any given level of analysis and that they argue this applied to both quantitative analysis as well as qualitative analysis. And so I'm just going to say as much as I think there were a lot of joys and highlights to uh, history and politics of sports, we had too many variances to, to make any sort of meaningful assessments. Um, and that's always, that's troubling, right? Because what you want to mm. be able to do is sort of say, okay, if we've taught this once and we, we're going to teach it again, and I sincerely hope we teach this again, mm-hmm. um, then what do, what do we change? Well, halfway through the semester, we converted it to an online class. Yeah. Um, halfway through the semester, we abandoned a significant number of assignments that we had planned to do at the beginning of the semester, right. and we created new ones. Um, and I can't tell if some of those things were good choices or they were only good because of crisis or they would, or they would be better in a, in a sort of a more consistent, stable classroom environment. Um, I liked some things we did, but I can't make it broader assessments of I know. in some ways. No, it's true. Like, I mean, the conventional wisdom that I got from our colleague, Kevin Craig, who's since retired, and I've lived by is you need to teach a class three times to really know what you're doing. And so yeah. like, the problem with our class is because of our loads, we only do this every other year. Which right. means it's going to take half a decade to get to that magic three. And I'm not I even sure this one should count because of all the no, things this is you like just a, named. Are you saying my son will be taking it when you're still figuring out what you're well, doing? Finally. We'll have an stride when Banked is there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably true. And they add on to students, at least some number were taking it pass-fail. Uh, who knows what their learning environments were like. Yeah, I, I should be loath to draw any conclusions, but historians are not nearly as rigorous, and we use anecdotal data for all sorts of things. So I'll draw two conclusions here. Please. Um, and I don't even know if these sort of things do differently, but just like things I want to be sensitive to. 
mean, I think like we knew right off the bat, the first challenge we had with students was not that they wouldn't be interested. I mean, I think you don't get a 70 student class filling up right away if they're not interested. And a lot of them are athletes. It's how do you get them to actually think about this as something worthy of academic inquiry mm -hmm. and, and to study it through those means, right? Um, through the use of political science and history and economics and psychology and the other disciplines we drew on. Right. And um, I mean, I, I think they struggled with that to some extent. And I think it was easier when we were in class and we could model that. I think the, yeah, I think the one big thing, like we're actually very different teachers. That's one thing that I've taken away from this experience, which I knew, but we had to teach together to really get it. But like the one thing we share it's like, I think we're both pretty excited to be in class. You know, the, whether we are the primary person there, or just kind of there to bounce ideas off the other person. And I would never underestimate the power of students watching that happen, learning from it, and our ability to model that kind of inquiry and to show that that doesn't mean you have to stop being a fan or something. Right. It does mean you have to learn how to think critically about this. You have to evaluate evidence, right? And I, I think that's a hard thing to do. And I, I don't know what to do better about that, but I do think it was something students were still struggling with. And then the second thing that struck me about the final essay, because we had them thinking about this idea that sports can do religious work. That was the mm -hmm. opening question. We asked, like, how mm -hmm. does COVID under, underline this? And then the closing question was, as a Christian, like, what do you do with that? Should you be troubled by it? Is it not problematic? Um, and it struck me that that's actually a pretty difficult kind of academic analysis. It, it's hard to study religion academically, too. And, and I was struck that our students are not used to thinking critically about religion. They're, they're not used to defining what it is. They are not used to stepping back and asking about what it does to people for better or for worse. Um, like it was, it was clear like seniors did better with this. And I don't know if it's just like often you get past sophomore to junior year and you, there's something happens or if they just had more life experience. But I, I think it was really hard for like our sophomores to kind of step back and ask, what is religion, and what does it do to me and for me and through me? Um, and they were and they were pretty honest about that. Sometimes yeah. you have students who, or if, if we design our our sort of evaluations poorly, they'll feel like they have to craft something, and they didn't. What they were really seemed to say a lot of times was, "I've never thought about this before," mm -hmm. and they would talk about their own, uh, you know, religious history. But, and sometimes they would use that as, as sort of almost their crutch and say, well, because I'm this, I never had to think about this. Yep. But to which we wanted to respond, because you're evangelical or Roman Catholic or whatever the case may be, then you need to think about this. Right. And I, yeah, a lot of them hadn't taken that step yet. Yeah, I mean, I, in some respects, it just it's too bad there's not necessarily a class we hand them off to from here. Like, I mean, to yeah. do the sports kind. I mean, I think there are other history and political science classes that hopefully they want to take because of this. But um yeah, I think it is asking a lot of them to learn how to do this. And the way it had to happen this semester was not conducive to, to that going well. Yeah, it does make me, putting on a different hat of mine, it, it makes me think about what we do in CWC, which is a first-year gen ed course that comes right before this kind of gen ed course. Mm -hmm. And I think we generally do a pretty good job of giving them theological categories for where they kind of fit in the story um, to start wrestling with questions like faith and reason. But it did, it did strike me, one thing we don't talk a lot about in CWC would be uh, worship, religious mm -hmm. community, spiritual formation, um, themes of idolatry would certainly fit in the sports and religion kind of discussion. Like they were not set up to think critically about sports is worshipful in a sense, and sports does create this gathered community, and sports is forming us. And, and I'm not sure they've necessarily thought a lot about how that happens in their own lives as Christians. Um, so I'm not sure that's the job of CWC, but that seems kind of like a prior level of analysis they maybe haven't had to do before. So, Chris, I, I, we didn't talk about this off air, so I'm springing this on you a little bit. Sure. But sometimes in some of my courses, I, um, without publishing it, create a sort of uh, subtitle for the course. So for example, when I'm teaching the political science senior seminar this coming uh, fall, all the books I've selected, all the sort of current contemporary research in political science deal with nationalism, populism, and identity. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's just gonna be the sub theme for that group of senior SEM students. We're just, mm -hmm. we're gonna work our way through what those things mean. Seems really appropriate and timely. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna chew on some sort of contemporary scholarship in that. What would you think about sort of the unpublished subtitle of history and politics of sports being uh, sports as religion and vice versa? I, I love it. And even if it was a different um, topic, I love the idea of a focus because the final thing that I took away is that 
because it was a survey class, I, I know that I fell prey to one of my bad instincts as a teacher and a scholar, which is to try to cover everything possible. Yes. Like I would rather like I and, and like I, I'm feeling this as I write a book right now. I'm at that stage of like I've got hundreds of pages of notes. I'm going to try to cram all of it into this 200 page book. And, and the same thing happens when you're teaching a class. And I think one thing that will come more naturally just doing it a second time is you'll start to realize you can let go of things and say, yes. instead, let's let's try to cover three fewer topics and spend a little bit more time maybe on that introductory, how is this religious work or how have Christians responded to it? I, I do feel, think it's a place where because we lost a week of content, I think that did at least take away a couple of maybe pieces we could have given them that would have helped. But I would love the idea of, I mean, I think it would help students. I, I think one thing that, that CWC class I mentioned as well is it's a huge survey of 2000 plus years of history, but it's got three or four questions you hear over and over and over again. Right. And I think that's often helpful to a survey class to have a, a theme or a question, uh, some, some thread that holds everything together. So, yeah, I'd rather take some of those places where I felt in the, on the political side, where we were introducing ideas and asking them to grapple with them, but we really hadn't given them the undergirding necessary to be uh, really highly functional in that. So like, like public policy analysis, for example, I wasn't gonna take a public policy class, but I don't think we can teach a public policy class in the context of this course. Yeah. As much as I like that, and as much as I really like the stadium simulation that accompanied it, mm -hmm. I'm not sure we got out of the students what we wanted them to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what I do like about this is I like course design, but I also like course redesign and I like tinkering yeah. with things. And I think you're probably much the same way. And we've got a couple of years to, to keep working on it. Yeah. I also like that we've got this podcast as a kind of uh, sandbox to play with ideas into. So even though it's going to be a couple of years till we teach the class again, I'd assume that we're going to continue doing the 252 off and on in the interim between the two offerings of the class. And so maybe that'll help us get some focus and identify some things to add or to drop. So in that spirit, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the world of sports. Now, of course, one of the themes of the semester that we didn't expect was what happens to sports when they can't be played for a couple of months. And so uh, we, we kind of dabble in that. And maybe it's just a good topic to, to close on. Um, what have we seen? Like what sports are back? We're going to talk about one of them, German soccer in segment mm -hmm. two. But in this country, what sports are back or about to come back? What are some proposals out there? What's what's one uh, one return from COVID that's really caught your attention so far? Well, the one I'd wanna, really want to talk about and dwell on a little bit is one of my favorite sports teams anyway. And I know that Sam enjoys it as well. And that's the NBA. Mm -hmm. And I think there's actually a lot of politics in uh, what the NBA is proposing and what they're sort of looking at doing. And so uh, as I understand, I mean, I guess we should start by saying not every team is going to be involved. At least the proposal right now is not every team is involved in their turn of the season. And I want to just, just jump off of that and then I'll throw it over to Sam for the next coming, maybe kind of the playoff itself. But that's really interesting to me because the NBA has this problem. At least I think it's a problem, which is tanking uh, teams that know they're not good will um, make no additional – they won't necessarily throw games, but they'll make no effort to be good. And the goal of that, of course, is because a single player in an NBA draft can really swing your fortune so dramatically, you'll have um, teams that are happy to be really terrible for a season or even a couple of seasons, Philadelphia, um, in order to try and get some decent draft picks. This this compromise by, by the uh, really acknowledges tanking. Um, it basically recognizes that there's some teams in the league that right now really kind of prefer to be bad: Timberwolves, Detroit Pistons, Golden State Warriors, right? And there's and there's others as well. But by giving them that sort of uh, out, they, like they, like we're gonna keep playing, but you don't have to play anymore. <laughs> Um, is really kind of both economizes the league, but also gives those teams the thing that they wanted at the beginning of the, the season anyway. The Timberwolves do not want to play more basketball. I think that's pretty clear. And this is a way for them to get to kind of get away with that. I, I don't know if I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, Sam, how once we actually get 24 teams back to a playoff, how is this going to work? I'm actually not sure which what, what are the formats that have been kicked around or have they landed on one? Well, the one I've heard most predominantly is that they would use uh, Disney World in Orlando right. as a neutral site where they would put up all the teams with a limited, with no fans and a limited number of family members, entourage, so forth. And they would play out 
sort of uh, I've heard a couple of different versions. My favorite version is that it would be a little, a little bit like the World Cup. Yes, I, Bill Simmons did a, uh, and Kevin O'Connor did a podcast yesterday where they talked through kind of, so there would be sort of uh, pool play groups and then the exactly. top teams coming out of those groups. So that would both give teams a ramp up to the, um, to the playoffs and it would, mm-hmm. and you could use, you could seed that or have tiers in the way they do World Cup pools. Exactly. Um, you know, so it could be a random draw or they could snake through. So yeah, uh, Simmons and O'Connor, uh, Kevin O'Connor did a big breakdown of that. So that would be one mm-hmm. option. What are the others that you've heard? I think there'd be instead of, you would basically just get rid of the group play and you'd have um, you'd see the twenty the twelve teams uh, in each division and you'd have shorter uh, series. Short series yeah like three game series perhaps and I think one of the big questions that surrounds this is depending on what format you use there is you need to think about both what would be this is supposed to be entertainment so what would be fun to watch versus what gives you sort of legitimacy in terms of naming a champion and something like that so i mean one of the one of the things that would be really fun would be to do a single elimination tournament we would i mean march madness style that's really fun but if you did that would you look at the team that won that and say well that's the same as you know a team that went through the grind of seven game series and things like yeah. that so so yeah I, so i think what you what they want to do is his, is have something that can be historically looked at as a legitimate champion i think that this this applies to all the leagues whether it's mlb um, nba uh, nfl whatever that happens this year there's going to be a some kind of an asterisk attached to this season. Legitimacy is going to be a problem that championship teams struggle with this year. It's right, and it's not completely unknown. Like you've had strike shortened seasons before in the NFL, Major League Baseball, a couple others, and uh, maybe that kind of fades with time. Um, we could talk about the NHL. They're kind of proposing something similar-ish to what Chris just described with the NBA, 24-team playoff, like two hub cities, I think, is the current proposal. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about my favorite sport, of course, which is Major League Baseball. So for a little while now, the owners have had a proposal. For, I think it's like half a season, right? Starting sometime in July, like an 82-game season. I like that Bryce Harper had his own kind of convoluted proposal that he put on Instagram of how to do even more games. Um, But part of this was the owners would like the players to agree to essentially another salary cut. They had already agreed to a prorated salary reduction of something like 50%. And the new proposal would especially hit hard the top paid players. I mean, at the bottom level, it's basically very similar to what the prorated one would be. But it It would really hit your top uh, you know, number one starters, your all-star position players. And at least judging by the tweet I saw from Max Scherzer last night, and he's on the Major League Baseball Player Assistant exec- Executive Committee, this is going nowhere. And so I don't know, like, part of me wants to ask, like, is this going to get done or are we still going to get baseball? But I wonder if the more serious question is, what does this portend for next year mm-hmm. in baseball? Because the collective bargaining agreement expires after next year. There had already been talk of a serious work stoppage. Um, and, and so, this is sort of roiling up the bad blood already. Yeah, yeah we're already starting to posture about this. Um, I mean, it seems very clear that the owners want to install some sort of salary cap in baseball, which, of course, Major League MLBPA is never going to agree to. Um, so that that's just interesting to see that labor, I mean, labor is there also in terms of like workplace safety kinds of issues. Are players going to be cooped up in a single hotel away from their families the whole time? But that this also is now getting down to compensation. And I mean, I think the players I think fairly are saying we're taking a significant risk to do this. Why should we have to take a further pay cut? We've already agreed to one. Uh, why why should owners have a right to making three hundred million dollars a year off of owning this investment? Uh, why not have more equitable kind of compensation? So that that was another one that I've been paying more attention to. Um, we should talk about college sports a little bit, you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't. I think have a lot of clarity about what fall is going to look like for the NCAA. The the latest news I could find was that one of the big tournaments, the SEC, their presidents voted to allow athletes back on campus for summer practice starting, I think, second week in June. Right. It seems like a sign that they want to be back for football one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they want to be ready if they're back. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what else? I mean, what's your sense of what fall sports is going to look like in the college landscape? Don't you all just feel... factors are out there? Don't you all just feel like this is that kind of like cocktail party around a pool where you know at some point some, people are going to jump in the pool, but you're just waiting to see who jumps first. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's what this feels like to me. Uh, we have a whole bunch of schools who really are saying the same kinds of things, which is they are anticipating having students back on campus in the fall. They're anticipating a very different quote unquote new normal, uh, but they're not really talking about what it would take to play sports games. And they're saying sort of, they're sort of making sort of like these, like sort of, I would say like feints or jabs to use, to use uh, fencing terms uh, it, to just kind of sort of craft the debate. So for example, uh, the University of Michigan's athletic director this last week said that uh, the University of Michigan would not be playing football unless all of its students were back on campus. But that's a really big question of what all of its students means. Well, it's not even clear that that's true. Like that, that seemed to be the initial line you were hearing from university presidents. And now in the last week or two, you're starting to hear some hints of, well, but couldn't we do the, not all the students will be there, but this group of student athletes who happen to generate a lot of revenue for us, maybe we could find a way for them to come back and play with well, and, and I think that's interesting too, thinking about like when we're talking about student athletes coming back in the summer, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking f football players, but mm -hmm. like, what about other student athletes? You know, is are is is this that we're willing to risk it for the ones that make a lot of money? Or what, what we're, I mean, and, and then how? What does that have to do with, you know, how we think about um, sort of gender equity with some of these things too? Like who has the right to, um, who has the right to have their season exist versus who doesn't? Well, in some respects, as we've and Sam, you're actually on committees dealing with it. Like as we think about the public health kinds of concerns surrounding reopening colleges and universities, it seems to me like student athletes are the most at risk. Certainly. Right. A lot of them are involved. I mean, in sports where you can't possibly social distance. How do you socially distance a contact sport like football or soccer right. for that matter? Yeah. Um, but also there's students who travel constantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, to other populations across great distances and cooped up airplanes and buses. And I mean, it just seems like yeah, in some ways, if we have any concerns at all, that should be the last kind of activity we ought to be encouraging and sanctioning, depending on for colleges. But obviously, it's so so much a part of the economics of higher education that it's it's hard to imagine reopening without them uh, at this point. There are also some interesting scheduling kind of quirks here. Uh, before we started, Chris, you were noting that a few pretty significant universities, including Notre Dame, are anticipating a second wave of COVID happening later in the fall, uh, right. maybe you say December. So what are they planning to do? So their goal is to start at the normal time, sort of start somewhere late August, early September, depending on their schedule, but then wrapping by Thanksgiving. So this has always felt a little bit weird to me being at Bethel because we follow the kind of the normal uh, trend, which is we have a Thanksgiving break and then we come back for something around two weeks or so and then try and wrap up before Christmas. But they're basically doing away with that. They're basically thinking by the time we hit late November, there's going to be another round of, of expansion of, of uh, outbreak of coronavirus. And so they're going to try and get their whole semester in before that happens. And I understand the logic to that. It is a little bit troubling to me on, a, on an ethical level that we're basically going to have a bunch of young people in a highly contagious environment and then send them home to their families, which probably, contain, which probably contain their grandparents. Exactly. And so I, I do, I am concerned about that and I don't want to be complicit in that, but, uh, but yeah. It wouldn't is, surprise me if we did though. I think one of the colleges that's known something like this is Wheaton College in Illinois, which mm -hmm. uh, in, in our world is, is a leading institution. And I thought their idea was to try to wrap up Thanksgiving and then have like a two week online period with finals uh, at home, essentially. So right. I, I've almost, I don't expect our institution to make a decision until late June, July, but it would not surprise me, I'll put it this way, if that's what we actually went with, because we've got that example in our world. In some ways, with. in some ways, it's, it's it's one of the cleaner solutions mm -hmm. compared yeah. to some other ideas that have been floated out there. Let me throw one more idea at you here, which is a little bit crazy. And we've talked a bit, uh, in this class about some of the political rancor over the NCAA itself as an institution. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as being a catalyst for the NCAA to be weakened in uh, college sports? Uh, because you imagine certain like power conference teams negotiating separately with each other saying, we don't need this larger umbrella organization. We can create our own kind of competition. Exactly. So if the, if, if a bunch of uh, schools that were not part of the power six conferences decided for, for health and safety purposes, we're just not playing football this year. Mm -hmm. And the, and, and the power six said, there's too much money in this. We love, uh, we're, it's, it's, it's too big. It's too big of a deal for us. We're going to go outside the NCAA and we're going to play these games anyway, just amongst the six conferences. 
And that could really, I think, set a pathway for the NCAA to be removed from that process. Yeah, because you've had those kinds of um, pressures already happening anyway, as conferences have consolidated into these, is it five or six even at this point? I don't mm -hmm. know. Like, why Why do you need it? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that one entirely surprised me. Um, I mean, I, I did wonder, like, both because of the question of whether you play or not, but also the question of uh, does eligibility carry over for another year? Like, that seems like a relatively non-controversial thing around a Division three school. Like, I'm sure mm -hmm. there are problems I'm not aware of, but it doesn't seem like our student athletes are concerned by that. But that's got to be a nightmare if you're a, if you're a power conference football team and you've got this incredible recruiting process happening and you've we're you don't have scholarships to give all your new recruits coming in because people are coming back for a fifth or a sixth year that yeah i mean I, I can see all sorts of places like that where they're already living in a different kind of world and the continued benefit of being part of this much larger organization seems seems to be lost there's a smaller a smaller labor issue too uh we've seen a rise it's a small per, a number but a rise of um highly attractive college players who are definitely going to be drafted in the NFL, basically taking off their senior year or, or, or sitting out their senior year to avoid injury. Uh, this is specifically with football, not so much with basketball. And I do wonder if we will see a huge run of that this year. And basically players saying, I don't want to risk my draft stock by getting coronavirus middle of my senior year's football season. So I'm just going to prepare for the draft and um, I don't need to play college football anymore. I think I think you would you'll definitely you would definitely see that potentially with some seniors. What I wonder is, will you see that with even underclassmen who, you know, sort of the sort of like you see with uh, with basketball, where guys will uh, um, you know go somewhere else and just sit that year out, so they don't even have to go to college just to get the one year out um, mm -hmm. for the one and done. So that would be interesting, even with younger players. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, wrap up the segment, uh, Sam, any chance to talk horse racing? I feel like we need to honor. Do you have anything to tell us about the uh, yeah, revamped so, triple crown? Yeah. So the uh, the Belmont Stakes, which is traditionally the last and longest race um, in the in the triple crown, will actually be the first race because they're going to be running on June twentieth, and they're gonna, but they're going to be running at a shorter distance. So they're going to be running at a mile and an eighth, which is the Derby length. The the um, the Belmont is usually a mile and a half. Uh, which is can be a, a grueling long race for some of these horses. So um, one of the things that's interesting about this, though, so then the the Derby will be in late September, or in excuse me, in September, and the Preakness will be in October. So because these are spread out so much, um, it actually might increase the number of horses who will run in all three, that there's a longer gap between them. Because sometimes you'll see a horse run in the Derby and then not run in the Preakness because of the turnaround time. You know, and a horse that wins the Derby kind of has to run the Preakness because, you know, you're, you're going for history there. So um, so that will be interesting. So the, the, the Belmont has been a mile and a half since uh, 1926. So we'll be um, running a shorter race. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a, it'll be run without, um, without, a crowd, but it's one of those things where, I mean, the optics of TV aren't an issue because you don't really see the crowd um, uh, in that. And I don't know what I don't know is because we've never asked a horse or they've never answered. Like, does that change <laughs> running the race for the horse in, right. a, in, in a, a positive or a negative kind of way? I'm sure there are some horses who will respond better without it. And some who will, you know, are, you know, made alive by the, the roar of the crowd. That's right. So, so Sam, my understanding of the three horse, the three races, of the Triple Crown, were that they were kind of their individual own fiefdoms. The Derby, the Preakness, the, the Stakes were all sort of individually governed. What led to the uh, Belmont Stakes deciding to shorten the race? Um, I think it it probably has to do with some preparation. That you know, like with a runner, you know, you need to stretch yourself out to get to the longer distance. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, these horses are probably, I, I don't know, I don't know how much, if they're in sort of limbo, how much they were ramping these horses up. Plus, I don't know that there will be a lot of uh, prep races for them leading up to this. That I don't know. So that makes I think sense. It's, it's more a matter of like, you know, you, you just go with the shorter distance on that. So. That makes sense. All right. So that's some of what might be looming in the post or mid COVID future for sports. In segment two, we're going to talk about a league that actually is back, has been playing for a few weeks. We're going to talk about the ghost games of the Bundesliga in segment two.
week in sports history. London, England, May 28, 1742. The first indoor swimming pool in modern history opens in Lemon Street. About 40 feet long, it is called the Bagno, from the Italian word for bath. Its male-only subscribers enjoy heated water and swimming instruction from attendants called waiters. Washington, D.C., May 29, 1922. In a final blow to the upstart Federal League, the Supreme Court rules unanimously that federal antitrust laws do not apply to Major League Baseball. Although the decision will be partially reversed 50 years later in the Curt Flood case, baseball still retains its antitrust exemption. Washington, D.C., May 29, 2001. Another sports moment at the Supreme Court, a 7-2 majority rules the PGA must allow Casey Martin to use a golf cart under the terms of the Americans with Disabilities Act. A former college teammate of Tiger Woods, Martin was born with a circulatory condition that made it dangerous for him to walk long distances. New York, New York, June 1st, 2012. 50 years into their history, the New York Mets finally throw a no-hitter as left-hander Johan Santana shuts out the St. Louis Cardinals 8-0. Santana into the windup. The payoff pitch on the way. Swung on and missed. Strike three. He's done it. Johan Santana has pitched a no-hitter in the 8,020th game in the history of the New York Mets. They finally have a no-hitter. And who better to do it than Johan Santana? And what a remarkable story. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Back to the season finale of the 252. Guys, we have not talked enough about soccer. I think is that fair to say? Generally, we've not done a lot of soccer-themed episodes, but we're living in a moment where right now, if you want live sports action, soccer is probably your best option. Now you could do Korean or Taiwanese baseball, but I think your best option is probably European football. So uh, earlier today we heard that the Italian league, Serie A, is coming back June 20th. Actually, Chris, I dimly remember in early March on an episode of the 252, you announcing that they were going to play without fans in Syria. So they actually yeah. tried this on the other side of the hiatus. And I think the British, the Premiership is coming back a few days before that. Is that right? That's correct. June 17th, the Premiership will be returning. I'm not sure what the status of fans are, but basically it's a season as normal uh, okay. for, the, for the Premiership. So they'll be coming back, but we already for a few weeks now have had competition in Germany, the Bundesliga the Federal League of Germany, uh, which is by most accounts one of the top three or four leagues in the world. So this is pretty significant. Uh, averages something like forty to 45,000 fans across its 18 teams. So this, these are well-attended games, but these are Geiterspiele, uh, ghost games. There are no <laughs> fans there, although they have pumped noise into a few of them. I was watching some highlights and I kind of forgot what was happening for a second. So I have a question about the pumping noise and are they mm -hmm. pumping it into the broadcast or into the stadium? I wasn't sure. I was watching highlights. That I think they're trying to cram some games in. So they had some midweek games uh, this past week. And uh, the big game was between uh, Bayern Munich and uh, Borussia Dortmund. So one and two. And all of a sudden you just, and it was strange because for a couple of weeks, it was really eerie. I mean, to hear coaches shouting out, to hear the echo of a ball being struck. And so I don't, that's a good question. And we'll have to, we'll have to research that off air, but uh, it, it, it has been an odd phenomenon. So to get us started with a discussion and then an activity around the mm -hmm. Bundesliga, let me read to you a little bit from an article in The Atlantic uh, from a few days ago. Uh, we'll put it on my blog, but it's called Athletes During the Pandemic Are Learning What Fans Have Always Known. So here's what they've known. Uh, they talked to Michael Stewart, a researcher at the University of Geneva, who said... Cheering and playing hard are expressions of the same social imagining. Without the cheering, the team lacks evidence that the fans are imagining the same thing they are, and the power of the collective imagining goes down. Without the fans being there to imagine with them and the other team to imagine the opposite outcome, it's not a real game. Discuss. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they go on to talk to some players about how, I mean, it's really, I think it's just kind of a, an eerie sensation of something is absent, and this researcher is saying, well, what's absent is actually this collective imagining process that's part of sports. 
And I wasn't quite sure even how to take that. I thought partly of Sam, something you had said very early in the series about um, the kind of drama that's, uh, you know, it's, it's truer than fiction that's part of sports. You really don't know what's going to happen. Um, but it's really multiple lines of drama running into each other because we're each imagining different outcomes to every play and every match, and, and that's missing in a sense. Um, so that, that was one thing. The other thing that struck me, though, is like uh, I've never really watched the Bundesliga before. And as far as I know, I mean, like this is kind of fine for me. Like, why, I, the only reason I'm watching it is because they're doing this without fans. They have now picked up a different kind of fan, right? Americans who are not really big soccer fans are now turning to this because they have no other sporting option open to them. Uh, I, as we'll see in a second, I'm even trying to get a rooting interest in this league at this point. So I mean, those are the first couple of things that came to mind for me. And then we have a fun activity to do, but there are a couple of serious things we can talk about too. Yeah, I, I think the the question of like like uh, I mean, I think that's an overstatement to say it's not a game, you know. Um, but because I I think the thing that that instantly came to my mind is. Um, I don't know if either of you watched The Last Dance or are familiar with the career of Michael Jordan, um, but one of the most famous games Jordan ever played in is a game that nobody saw, right? That there's the, there's this really famous um, dream team practice where Magic, uh, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan each had their own teams. And there's there's spotty footage of it you can see online, but you can't see the whole game. And and it, this is this is sort of regarded as the greatest basketball game no one's ever seen because those guys cared probably more that more in that game than they cared in any Dream Team actual like game that they were playing for the in in the Olympics because of the level of competition and the way that they were pushing each other. Um, so like so so it makes me think like, well, was that a game or was that just some people playing? Well, so it raises a question that kind of came up the Atlantic. How are how essential are fans to the process? Like they quoted, I think, a, a Arizona Diamondbacks pitcher who said, well, this is where we get our energy, right? We feed off the fans. Like we mean it when we say the fans helped us win a home game. And I could get that. Like in the middle of a long slog of a season, like you've got to derive energy from something. But it seems to me like most elite athletes are pretty intrinsically motivated. Like if they want to compete, they will find resources drawn to compete. And maybe it's just the kind of bragging rights that were probably at stake in that dream team scrimmage. Yeah, that that sounds to me like you could read that quote as that's a guy selling tickets, <laughs> right? Like, like it's just about the fans. It's about like, of course you say that, but like, but I think, okay, and I'll just think about even my own past. Like, like I played high school basketball. I was a very bad high school basketball player, but I played high school basketball. The greatest basketball games I ever played in were not games where we were playing actual games, but they were games where we would go to the Y and play these epic pickup games, you know, and like, and, and no one was watching those. And those are, those are the sports highlights of my life um, and not because I couldn't make another team because I was on other teams, but like, so like, so to me, you know, and I am not a, a professional athlete. So I, but, but I, I, I sort of wonder, I, I, I sort of wonder like how necessary it is for the people playing the game. And it's not that there aren't fans there because they are televising these and there are lots mm -hmm. of people watching them. So this idea of this collective imagination, like all that stuff sounds pretty, but if you're watching it at home, you're doing the same things you're doing. If you're there, it's just, they can't hear you. Right. So, so I'm think skeptical. <laughs> I, to me, this is really clear, and I'm not sure. Maybe it's too clear. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm off base on this. But the idea of fans and the trappings that go with fans are really important for sport as entertainment, not for sport as athletic competition. And I think that's what we're really getting at here. Is I'm going to make a silly a, a silly comparison, but plenty of sitcoms get funnier because there's a laugh track. And, and fans essentially are a much more important uh, addition to sports than a laugh track is to a sitcom because think about all the times that uh, the camera just captures fans uh, in the foreground or, the, or um, in the, the sort of the, 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 the frame of the shot, or you, you, you hone in on, on the, on a cheerleader or a pet band. I'm thinking about NCAA sports here. Right. Um, well, and, and, and I want to say in part of that is because there are big chunks of sports where stuff isn't happening. Exactly. And so we need, I, this is where I buy the imagined community kind of argument. Like we need to know that other people are as excited about this as we are. And sometimes we need to let their excitement pull us into that excitement. Mm -hmm. Like a laugh track reminds us, oh, this is funny, or at least it's supposed to be funny. 
and, and kind of bring along that level of energy and enthusiasm in ways that the athletes just don't have time to do. They're worried about the next play or the next move. So I think that's really important. I wonder if there's any kind of analogy here to tie back to our opening theme from this episode of, of worship virtually versus watching sports virtually. Because mm. I mean, actually a couple of students did try to develop this idea in their essays. Um, I mean, I assume that we all have been attending church uh, with some level of regularity without having set foot in a church building for two and a half months now, at least I think it was my, my record. And I know that that's not an embodied worship experience. And I also still feel like I have been worshiping and there's even been some spiritual growth taking place. And I think that's the right move in terms of public health and loving your neighbors and all the rest. And if I think that, um, I mean, there, there's a kind of a collective worship experience taking place when 45,000 people get together in Stuttgart to watch a football match. But if they're, many more people are sitting around their TVs watching the same match. Uh, is that going to dampen sports as religion? Mm. Is that a lesser, are you less devoted to your team now? I, Man, if only we had like an interconnected web of technology where we could yeah. communicate our fandom and celebrate. I mean, like to me, to me, this would be an issue if it was, you know, 1942 but, but like, I, I don't know. Like I, okay. I, I, I and I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm, today taking this particular stance but I, I also think like i love the twins i mm -hmm. but i go to one game a year i love the vikings mm -hmm. i've never been to a vikings game mm -hmm. you know but i have had i know what the minneapolis miracle felt like when i was watching it at home right, right. and like mm -hmm. yes there was the fan reactions but there was my son's reaction sitting next to me when that happened okay so the follow-up to this i want to ask you is is there a chance here or I guess soccer more generally, but these European leagues to actually pick up American fans more permanently if what you just said is true, Sam. That's the I, same thing. Like I've, I've never been to a Vikings game, and I feel like I'm a pretty committed Vikings fan. Is there a chance 20 years from now I'm a pre pretty committed Bundesliga fan because of this moment? And here I, I want to remind you guys of something. We actually did. Uh, it was a kind of a four, forerunner of the 252. On my blog, I once asked you both to take part in a thought experiment what happens if the NFL disappears because of concussions or whatever? And, and we mostly talked about American sports. And the last one I gave you was the premiership. Was there any way in which an England-based soccer league could actually supplant the NFL as a leading entity in American sports? And you were pretty skeptical then, but you know it's it's been a few years now. Here's what I would say, and then I'll then I'll I'll cede the floor to uh, to Dr. Moore. Um, to me. This is a bandwidth issue. So when you taught, when you had us do that thought experiment, it involved the NFL going away. Mm -hmm. So right now the NFL has gone away and all everyone, well, that's not playing now, but all American sports have gone away. So there's this draw to saying, uh, let's watch the Bundesliga or let's watch reruns of the cornhole championships, which ESPN plays. I don't know if you guys <laughs> know this, but like I have walked into a room where my son desperate for sports was watching that. Um, but I think once the bandwidth is opened back up and you could not only could you, are you having to choose between those? Like they're coming up head to head. You also only have a certain bandwidth of fandom. Like if the NFL comes back or the NBA comes back or college sports comes back, you lose bandwidth to say, Oh yeah, I got to like follow the transfer window in Germany. No, it's it. This is going to be, this is like a, a, a summer camp romance, Chris. And it will go away once we go back to school. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I, I think that's probably right. I, I do want to say, like, it's also possible that Germany might have done a better job handling coronavirus than our government has done, and that we might be stuck with this longer than just a summer flirtation. Is that possible? Sure. I mean, and I think as long as the bandwidth is open, there's there's a longer chance for things to take root. But um, I think the drive for money in American sports is going to make it so there's going to be stuff that's going to be made to exist here. Hmm. Hmm. I, I'm mostly in this on Sam's page. I'll, I'll torture his analogy even further. I don't even think, I don't think this is a summertime romance. I feel like this is like the attractive person that's on the same subway car with you for the, for years. And, um, yeah, there's there's nothing. It's nothing more than just sort of a casual recognition that oh, that uh, that's an attractive person. Maybe you know, I'll, I'll look for them. You know, here uh, we in you know, a week by week to see if they continue to take my same commuting uh, 
uh, situation. I. So are, are you saying are you saying we run the risk of becoming stalkers like German German soccer stalkers? <laughs> like it, it starts as that, and then we have this unhealthy relationship eventually. No, no, no. I think it never. I think it never progresses beyond that. I think it's it's nothing more than that ever. I don't. I can't imagine uh, that this because the Bundesliga itself is is sort of, sort of impoverished at this point. It is not its traditional self. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that being an ideal fruitful ground for it to attract international fans at the same time. Okay, well, that's a big thought experiment. Let's do this on a micro level because the rooting loyalties of one particular 10-year-old American are at stake because my son <laughs> Isaiah is as star for sports as, as Samsung banked except we don't even have cable. So cornhole isn't even an option to us. All we have are whatever highlight packages we can get on YouTube. And we have discovered the Bundesliga and we'll watch it <laughs> and it's fine, but we actually like believing in something. And we wanna, we wanna dedicate ourselves to something. And so I asked Isaiah, hey Isaiah, what if I could get you a team to root for? Cause he doesn't care. Uh, he, he, he basically, he said, I prefer an underdog, but otherwise he doesn't really care. And okay. so I threw this out on social media. And what I what I said to Twitter followers and Facebook friends was, I need a Bundesliga side. I I don't it can't be Bayern Munich. I will unfriend you if you suggest Bayern Munich <laughs> at this point. And uh, you know nothing about the Bundesliga. Bayern Munich just dominates this competition. And I mean, like they they're now seven points ahead because they beat Dortmund uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday. They're the Yankees. They're the Yankees. They're the Yankees plus the Patriots basically oh. at this point. We're not rooting for that. Uh, so I said, basically, what I'm looking for is the Bundesliga equivalent of the Minnesota Twins, i.e. it should be like a kind of Minneapolis-St. Paul size city slash metro area. So, you know, it's not a small town, but it is a mid-sized to smallish market. It should have some history of success. You know, we should be able to recall the good old days of 91 or 87 or whatever, but it can be mediocre. That's okay. We don't actually need a top flight team that goes to the Champions League every year, as long as there's some history there and so let me give to you guys the finalists. But before you get to that, can I just sure. talk methodology here? Because yeah, because this do. interested me because we are both lifelong Minnesotans, yes. and that's been now the the twins have been less traumatic to us, but being Minnesota <laughs> sports fans is traumatic. So did anything cross your mind to say this is this is your chance for him to not root for a Minnesota team, or are you? Is this just so ingrained? No, no, no. In you? And it, I bring this so up. I, I bring this up because. <laughs> Uh, I did the same thing for myself in 2003 with with English soccer, and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to get into this. I have to pick a team, and 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 at that point, Bayern, the Bayern Munich equivalent was Manchester United. So I was like, can't can't be Manchester United. But my sense, and this is going to sound weirder because it's been almost 20 years and they still haven't won. But like my sense was, I didn't want the Twins. I wanted to root for a team like the Dodgers. Because to me, the Dodgers, at least growing up as a child in the 80s, the Dodgers are a team that wins sometimes. Like, they actually win a championship sometimes. Um, and Because so, if I had picked a, a Minnesota equivalent team, like I, I would have just been saddled with, uh, it's never going to happen. So this is a moot point, because Isaiah only wanted a Minnesota-type team. Okay. Right? He didn't so really want the him, as, as long as it's coming yeah, from yeah. him and not from you. Okay, so to give you a better sense of who your your demographic, Please. I'll tell you two things about my son because I think Sam knows Isaiah pretty well. Chris Moore, I'm not sure you know Isaiah all that well. So here's the first way he explained what he wanted. He said, "I would prefer the 2017 Twins to the 2019 Twins." Okay, hmm. unexpected okay. success from like young players you've never heard of. And here's the second thing you need to know about Isaiah Garrett's. He asked me the other day, uh, "Hey, what year was the Bundesliga founded?" And I said, I think it was 1963. And he thought for two seconds, and I swear he said to me, oh, you'd be in the year they passed the 1963 Endangered Species Act. <laughs> so that's who you're dealing with. I don't know what All that right. means, but that, that's who you're dealing with. Okay, so here are All the right. teams we got. So I should say, two teams got by far the most votes. They each got like five or six votes in this very small pool. But like, they came up to lots of different people. So my guess is it should be one of these two, but I have three others for you to pick from. Okay. So first of all, you've got Borussia Mönchengladbach. In Nordrhein-Westfalen, 261,000 people in the city of Mönchengladbach. Right now, it's in fourth place in the Bundesliga. Now, it has won five Bundesliga titles, but the last one was in 1977. Okay, one other factor I'll give you. I didn't include this initially, but some people did mention um, we probably would like to have an American to root for. 
So there is one U.S. Uh, men's national team player, Fabian Johnson, who's like 31, 32, is actually injured right now, so not a big factor, but I'll mention him. He's Here's fun. the second team, uh, FC Schalke. So this is part of the city of Gelsenkirchen, also Nordrhein-Westfalen. It's this kind of industrial heartland, rust belt. It kind of fits Minnesota well. Mm -hmm. uh, they're currently in ninth place. They had a really bad loss uh, yesterday that dropped them down out of European spot. They have never won a Bundesliga title, but they won seven titles in the years before the Bundesliga was founded. So okay. someone online said, I'm going to mention this, but it's really not a good fit because these are not the twins. These are the Chicago Cubs of the Bundesliga. Mm. But offsetting that, they have a very, very uh, up-and-coming American player named Weston McKinney. who He's like 20 or 21. He's from Texas. Uh, he actually scored this week on a header in the 50th minute. So there we go. We've got Mönchengladbach, Schalke are probably our top two. Three more I'll just mention briefly. Uh, Sporting Club Freiburg. Eighth place, has never won the Bundesliga. It won the second division, the Zweite Bundesliga, four years ago. And it kind of goes back and forth between the two levels. It's actually having a pretty good year this year. Freiburg has 230,000 people. Uh, FC Köln, or Cologne, they're in 11th place right now. They've won two titles, but like Gladbach, it's been a long time. 1978 was the last Köln title. That's the biggest city I'm going to give you. That's 1.1 million people. And then finally, Werder Bremen. Mm -hmm. uh, they've actually won four titles. They won in 2004. They are currently in danger of being relegated. They're in 17th place with like, I think, five match days left. Uh, they do have an American player, Josh Sargent, who's a new player, who scored a couple of times this year. Uh, I eliminated a couple others because Dortmund is too good and Hertha Berlin is in too big a city. I didn't think that fit the criteria. So those are your five choices. Sam, you've added the uniforms, uh, the yeah. kits of these. And teams. I will say, I, I will say, to me, this is a, a big piece of it because the, of your top two teams, Schalke by far has the better kit. Like they, they those look pretty sweet. That's like this kind of dark blue with white. Uh, that looks pretty nice. Uh, Although, can, I, can I just point out what's what's up? What's on the front? What's, who's the sponsor for Schalke? Gazprom. Ah, gas natural gas company. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and the right arm of Vladimir Putin. So there we go. <laughs> well, you know, um, I think. Can you say the name of the other team? Borussia. Which is also Russia, actually. Yeah, it's also a yeah. problem that that's hard to pronounce. And those jerseys are ugly. Yeah, I'm looking Gladbach. So they're just called Gladbach, right? Okay. That's all anyone can can get by saying. Gladbach, Gladbach's home jerseys are horrendous. So you got, and also like, I know you care about what you wear in terms of coloring and things like that. So yeah. a lot of, you know, they're, they, they wear green. It's green versus a Ooh. really awesome blue. Yeah. I, I like the, I like, I like Schalke for the blue particularly. I will say like that I, I like the royal blue a lot. Uh, dark green is fine, but like that green is not great. And also the green that I'm seeing here from Bremen, like Isaiah already kind of told me don't pick Bremen because he doesn't want to root for a team that's about to be relegated. So yeah. I put them in there just for, for, for fun, but I think we can eliminate them unless someone wants to make a strong case. I want to I go, I go more even more strident. The Gladbach jerseys look dirty before they're dirty. Like, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew this was going to get sartorial? Wow, I did not expect. Um, I want to put in a little bit of a plug for Freiburg because that is the only stadium in the Bundesliga I've actually been to because I did a little research in Freiburg a long time ago and the hostel was right next to the stadium, which is only like 20,000 people. It's a pretty small Bundesliga. They do have field. cool uniforms too. I they mean, do. they have they have sort of the um, AC Milan-esque, like the, the vertical red and black stripes. Those are pretty cool. And they're sponsored by a Black Forest Milk Company. So this is right in the boundary of the Black Forest, which is kind of a nice part of Germany. Uh, any, anyone want to take up the case of Cologne here? They're, they seem like a very middle-of-the-road kind of team in a lot of respects. In a very plain it's a nice region. city. I've been yeah. there. Yeah. They have a nice cathedral. I don't know that I want to root for their soccer team because of that. <laughs> Schalke sounds me, cool, too. Let me make the case, though, for Cologne, only mm -hmm. because... I think they um, they are a little bit more like the Twins than you might give them credit for. It's a pretty big city uh, and pretty culturally important for the region that it's in. They're in 11th place, but they do have two championships. And I feel like, boy, that doesn't sound all that different from the Twins, right? True. I want well, nice things for your say. son. <laughs> I want kind of nice things for your son. And yeah, so... I want a nice jersey for him to wear and to root for. 
And, you know, pre-1963, Schalke has seven championships, so they have a history of winning. It just, you just have to go back a ways. Yeah, I haven't, I didn't do enough for you, but my sense is they're generally, they're kind of, they are like the Cubs. They're kind of there. I mean, at least Cubs of like nineties mm-hmm. to two thousands, like they just never could break through. And like, so is the, is the Oh four, the founding year of the team? Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. he's, a, your son is a, is a budding historian. It has a year in the name of the team. That's pretty cool too. That is kind of sweet. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, I, I'm kind of hearing Shalika. Like Chris, I appreciate yeah. the case you make for calling that. It's a very Twin Cities-like team. I, I honestly think like Weston McKinney is a pretty fun player to watch, and uh, I, I think we're going to go with Shalika. That's so important, yeah. Okay. Well, Isaiah Garrett thanks you, or at least I thank you on his behalf. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted on how things are going. I'm well, just to watch out for that uh, dark money from Russia. That's the only thing I'm concerned about. <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll keep Colin as a backup just in case. What if that All dark right. money buys you a great midfielder, Chris? That's exactly what it does. That's exactly what it does. All right. We'll be back to wrap up in just a second. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. It has been a fun episode, a long episode. This is the finale. No pressure, guys, but we need three more to see Chris Moore get us started. All right, guys. Early in the semester, uh, Garrett and I assigned students a couple of chapters from Franklin Forrest's book, How Soccer Explains the World. One of those chapters dealt with soccer hooliganism. In some ways, the raw, blind partisanship of soccer hooliganism is making its way more deeply into our political sphere as well. If you want to really understand how sports or political allegiances can inure people to violence and injustice, check out Bill Buford's book, Among the Thugs. Bill Buford's a journalist, and he's spent considerable time with soccer hooligans, living with them, drinking with them, partying with them, going to games with them, and looked at how performative violence became not only tolerable, but even in his work, pleasurable. Although the book was published in 1990, and the European soccer has taken a number of measures to clean up hooliganism, I fear that Buford's account is perceptive when it comes to our political world. Is this a thing in political science, Chris? Like, I mean, in the uh, unbelievably polarized politics, I mean, do people describe conduct as hooligan-like, or is this? Uh, I have not, not heard that there. term used, but maybe mm-hmm. that maybe that's a good point for an article. Okay, Sam. My three to see comes from a sport that I don't really spend much time watching or even thinking about hockey. That's right. I'm saying you should jump onto YouTube and watch the December 30th, 1981 regular season game between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Edmonton Oilers. Why? Well, it's fun to watch early eighties hockey with guys skating around without helmets. You get to see future hall of famers like goalie Grant Fuhr, Mark Messier, who scores a goal and Paul Coffey, who also scores a goal and contributes two assists. You get to see a fun, high-scoring game with 12 goals scored in total. Oh, yeah, and you get to see a 20-year-old named Wayne Gretzky score five goals to give him 50 goals in the first 39 games of the season. The previous record was 50 goals in 50 games in 1945 by Maurice Rocket Richard. This Michael Jordan documentary has got lots of folks talking about who is the greatest basketball player ever. This has got me thinking about the greatest in other sports. In hockey, that's an easy one. Just like you needed to go watch Secretariat run, you need to go watch Wayne Gretzky play. Even if you don't care about hockey, maybe especially if you don't like hockey, it's pretty magical. Hmm. Sam, can I add on? Like, if you, I'll say this. If you like Sam's recommendation, go look up the 1987 Canada Cup which is amazing. It came down to three games between the Soviet Union and Canada. They were all six to five, and the winning goal was a Wayne Gretzky to Mario Lemieux pass. It's just incredible to watch. Okay. 
if you actually want to watch some live sports, Isaiah Garrett's favorite German football club is back next <laughs> on Saturday as FC Schalke hosts Werder Bremen at the Veltins Arena for match day 29 of the Bundesliga season. The Cubs of Deutschland badly need three points against the second-worst team in the league if they want a chance of playing European games next year. The young American star, Weston McKinney, scored their only goal in the disappointing midweek loss to lowly Dusseldorf. That was... Yeah, it feels right. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris and Sam, thanks for doing another season of the 252. Sam, especially, thanks for doing a lot more of this than you really expected to be doing this spring. You've got a lot of other podcasts going, but it was always fun to have you join us. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, stay on the network this summer. We have uh, some shows continuing into the summer. We also, I'm efforting some summer specific shows. So hopefully we'll drop some things that you don't expect. So if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you are subscribed, stay, stay subscribed. All right, Chris, I'll give you the last word. All right, thanks, guys, for playing. Thanks for all of you for joining us as fans um, and as participants in this whole process, both the class and in the podcast. You can always get a hold of us at channel3800 at gmail.com. And so we're back in your feed again. Thanks for listening, and go Royals. Right,